ransomware incidents are going up um, because it's a very efficient, illegal means to generate revenue from companies that aren't prepared to deal with it. Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, and grownups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. My guest today is Daniel J.W. King. He is the chief at IBM Security Command. We worked together when he was an officer in the U.S. Cyber Command at U.S. Pacific Command in uh, Honolulu. Daniel, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. Thanks very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. So it's been a while since, uh, you, you've actually been in the private sector for a while now, right? When, when did yeah. you leave the military? So I left in uh, late 2018 and went straight to IBM after that last assignment at U.S. Cyber Command. Great. And we're going to talk about um, all sorts of things. We're going to talk about domain authority. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about conversion rate optimization, best practices from a security standpoint. First, if you want to make this year uh, the year you get good at lead generation, Download my new white paper on the 10 essential digital marketing skills to master. Digital marketing is a broad discipline, and this white paper gives you an overview of the most important skills to develop in order of importance. And you can download it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash essential skills. So, so Daniel, for businesses that are just pivoting to digital, what are some of the larger points they need to know about cybersecurity? You know, that's a great question, Eric. Um, you know, and that's really the challenge um, because business has always been about balancing opportunity and risk and risk can be either positive or negative. And the case that we see today is, you know, there's a lot of positive risk, but there can also be some real downsides. And that's what you see in the headlines. Um, you know, it's a it's an interconnected 24-7 world that we live in today, and it exists in large part because of the convergence of technology and market forces. Um, the business proposition of, of instant access at low cost in a nearly frictionless marketplace that's built upon convenience is, it's a revenue engine. Um, but unfortunately, sitting right next to the driver is risk. And, um, you know, the top's down and it's enjoying thrilling acceleration um, for scaled opportunity from a risk perspective. Um, so, I mean, you know, we're here to talk about cyber risk. Um, and the good news is it's measurable. Um, and, but, and that's critical to what we're talking about today. Risk is measured by measuring likelihood and impact. Um, and something occurring that has, you know, if something or the likelihood of something occurring and the impact if it does. So, I mean, we can look at, you know, a low probability event like, okay, the sun's going to burn out. Yeah, it probably will, but not in any kind of time span that I care about. So that's not really a risk I'm going to manage. So let's talk about what businesses can do. Um, and these are the best practices, a lot that I've seen um, from the customers I've worked with over the past couple of years. Um, so, um, managing cyber risk or manage cyber risk just like you would legal, reputational, 
contract or, or, or competitive risk. It, it's just another kind of risk. Businesses manage risk all the time. You just have to look at cyber risk in the same context. Um, cybersecurity, the, the team, the security team, cybersecurity team has to align with the mission of the business and the objectives of the business. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds simple, but it's, it's a lot harder than that because there are companies out there that still see security as a drag on opportunity. And, and that's a problem because, you know, trust me, all you need to do is look at the headlines today and you can find those companies that are not aligned um, because there's been a massive breach or they've been DDoSed or they've, they've been hit by ransomware. Um, but that's really critical of this is that alignment and that the security and cybersecurity path is aligned with what the business is trying to achieve. Um, mature companies recognize that threats from cyberspace are not an IT problem. They're a whole of business problem. And you and I talked about this briefly before. These technologies are at the core of how we operate our businesses. And you think about it, every part of our business it is what part of our business isn't relying on a networked system? I mean, HR, accounting, finance, accounts receivable, they're all networked. Now, I've yet to find an example of one, but I mean, if a threat emerges inside of a system that touches every part of our company, that's not an IT issue. That is a whole of business issue. And the companies that are successful in this space are looking at it in that frame. So what can, we, what can we do to manage risk in this space? All right, so this one gets in, you know, you hear a lot of words about zero trust and you hear about other types of architectures you can build, but really what it boils down to is that the first step is identify what your most precious assets are. And whether that's customer accounts or intellectual property or transaction info, credit card numbers, whatever it is that you feel is really at the core of what you do as a business, those are your crown jewels. And we're gonna build the defenses out from there because that's what we're really trying to protect. And if we're doing it right, we're gonna build it in depth and we're gonna make it you know, so we're aware of what's going on, but we're really gonna focus on protecting those crown jewels. That sort of gets to the next point. Know what's going on inside your systems. You know, where they touch your customers at that digital storefront, that, that frontage. Know what's happening at your property line, and that might be your, your access point, a web page or an application, but then also look beyond that. Um, so, you know, you're going to look what's in the fence, what's beyond the fence line, what's in this forest, what are your competitors doing? And that's going to be something like threat intelligence is going to give you that kind of an insight as to what's impacting others. That'll give you some early warning. Um, have a plan to recover. Now, this one is key to business, but it also goes back to an old, old comment from Mike Tyson before the Vander Holyfield fight. You know, a reporter asked, you know, Mike, you know, what, what's your plan to go at Holyfield? And he goes, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Businesses get that. I mean, they've got plans for what happens when there's a big storm. There's a hurricane. There is there's an, an, an event that takes them offline for some period of time. That's business continuity. You're going to want to treat cybersecurity the same way. Um, and this is actually one of those aspects of this that you want to look at this from a scalability perspective. I mean, there's a difference between a big thunderstorm and a hurricane. Well, your business continuity plan is going to scale. Same thing said for cybersecurity. All right. So here's another one. People, process and technologies have pretty much solved every challenge in, in history. 
I mean, people, process, and technologies. I mean, certainly going through it today where we're, you know, people are doing things and the process and the technologies of vaccinations and all these things are coming together to try to solve a problem. That's going to be the same approach you're going to take in cybersecurity. The challenge here, though, is that alignment. There's not going to be any box of technology, no matter how new and improved, that's going to make you bulletproof. That's just the fact of it. It's still a human endeavor. It's an enterprise. And you're going to look at how you can balance all these things together in order to try to make this a manageable business process. Um, then last one, and this one's this one's really, there, there's actually two of them, but one of them is really important. This is evolving rapidly, and this is coming out of the insurance industry. Look at the risk that your partners are going to bring into your business, because you're going to go to market with partners. Well, those partners have risk, too. And so building in compliance and other types of requirements for you know, security requirements inside of contracts with these partners is going to save you a lot of heartache. A matter of fact, this is a best practice we're seeing. And then this last one, um, and this is coming from the most mature clients I know inside of biz, inside of financial sectors and um, healthcare sectors. Um, now, I'm not a lawyer, and but I've spent a lot of time with lawyers, and and they're good people, really. Um, I like them, um, but. As a business, you're probably going to have a legal resource that's available to scale to meet a legal challenge. It might be legal retainer. It might be general counsel. There might be a team of lawyers that are available. That's a pretty well-established framework. Now, what's interesting about this is that your business probably is also looking at what other features need to be scalable. So if you're looking at cybersecurity, you're going to look at that same modeling. So you may want to consider a retainer approach to having a scalable cybersecurity incident response capability, just like you would like a communications capability where you want to bring in experts that have resources and call centers and all. You want to have that scalability there. And that allows you to, one, manage cost. You don't have to have them sitting on site all the time, but they're very rapidly ready to respond when things start look like they're going wrong. Now, depending on where you do business, some of those same legal frameworks that are in place that allow you to conduct that kind of sensitive consultation with outside lawyers, third-party lawyers, um, some of those frameworks and protections can be extended into those other contract vehicles. So that now allows you a platform to literally orchestrate the entirety of a crisis response. And in cyber, though that kind of alignment really does make the difference. I mean, there's certainly some companies that are doing it well, um, and there's some companies that just aren't prepared for it. Interesting. You know, you, you talk about business. Obviously, you come from the military where, you know, if you make a mistake in business, you know, you don't sell something. If you make a mistake in the military, somebody dies. So what what sort of big lessons did you bring with you from your work in the military that have helped you most in your work at IBM? No, that's that's a great question. Um, so, you know, there's two things to it that I think are really relevant to this. You know, I was part of an organization that was, you know, at the very pointy end of information technology and at the very pointy end of working with the national security infrastructure. Now, that organization had security at the forefront and their security is legendary. But that organization is operating principally on mission. 
The mission is, you know, to defend the nation's network, defend military networks of the nation, or to prevent, you know, threats from being able to attack the country. There isn't a business proposition per se that's associated with that. It's a very mission-focused organization. Businesses have another part of that. Businesses have missions. But the responsibility to deliver shareholder value is a completely different dynamic than what the military is concerned with. So I came out of this exquisite environment of tremendously talented men and women who are committed to the mission, who have incredible resources available to them. And certainly I had full, I had full awareness of many of the threats that we were confronted by. I thought I really knew what the landscape looked like. Fast forward two years, I'm with IBM. The threat space around businesses is very different than the ones around nation state threats. I mean, criminal enterprises have evolved and organized crime has taken on a completely different shape in with all the technologies and market forces that are out there today. So if there's anything I would tell you, the biggest difference is that it's probably more complex. You know, businesses are trying to maximize value as part of their mission. Whereas in the military, you're focused on pretty much one thing and one thing only. And, you know, staying alive is part of it, but on the other hand, it's also meeting the mission requirement. It doesn't really have to do with generating profitability and shareholder value. Does that make sense? But did, did, it, some, did it in some way prepare you for, you know, because you came from a world where the risk was higher, does that make it easier for you to help companies avoid risk when it's lower? It does to an extent. But I mean, the other aspect here is that, you know, you think about what militaries do. I mean, militaries operate in a crisis condition almost all the time, um, which means, you know, for the 30 years I spent active duty, um, I would probably say 20 of those was was in some sort of geopolitical condition and crisis where people were at risk or property was at risk. Interests were at risk. It was constantly risk. So you're at a threshold of incredibly stressful and high tension events that you're just, you get to a point in these organizations in the military operate in that crisis condition every day. So you get incredibly efficient organizations and stress is just part of what you need to manage as you're going through this. Businesses aren't necessarily prepared for that. And that's where we typically see that people process technology start to collapse. When you start put people under load and process under load and technology under load, unless it's something that it's built for, is probably going to start to fail at some point. And I would pretty much hazard unless the people are really hardened for it and resilient, that's probably where it's going to fail first. So, you know, there's a cliche saying, and it goes like this, uh, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and the, the, um, you know, what the saying means is that, you know, if you if you hire somebody that's, you know, the big blue and, you know, they've, they've got a reputation, if they fail, you're not going to take the heat because they're as good as it gets. So so not everybody can afford to hire IBM. Yeah. Right. Most people can't. You know, most people out there today are small businesses, consultants, uh, you know, sole proprietors mid-sized businesses and you know they they're just trying to get their arms around technology they're just trying to figure out how to use digital marketing 
to change their business, how to generate demand, how to generate leads online. And of course, you know, one of the key ways you generate a lead online is it's as simple as putting a form on a website to collect information. So, so what risks do, do web forms pose to small business? Yeah. Um, now, it, it, you know, you ha- sort of have to look at it from altitude as you're looking at this because you sort of take it from the framework of, okay, websites are information push, and it's just one way. Um, and you're just going to provide information to someone who visits your website. When you put an interactive field inside of a website, now you've opened a door. And that door is going to be bringing data in from outside your environment, and you're going to be processing that data inside your environment. And so I go back to the storefront methodology or, or, or metaphor that it's the same thing as someone coming off the street and coming into the store. They come in for business, you hope, but they could come in with other intent as well. So, I mean, when we're talking about interfaces, you know, we're, we really have to look at, you know, what kind of risks are at that point of interaction, the point of sale. Um, so, you know, the answer is that these interfaces, like your storefront, can carry risk. In this case, the risk can come in from any place in the world, though. And so that's the nature of that grand interconnected environment that we love to get onto. It's very low cost, low, low barriers to entry. And so those risks can come in from anywhere. And if you've got a lot of storefronts, you're going to see a lot of activity at that boundary. And I mean, in some cases, I know of some companies and organizations that have a very broad public presence where they've got, you know, their, whether they be students, which is one example, that infrastructure is being scanned automatically from outside millions of times per day. And it's looking for vulnerabilities. So web forms, as you said, are, you're asking for data to come in. These are data entry fields and they enable you to interact with your customers. That function is an open door to bad stuff, but it's also where the stuff you want is coming in. So if the site's not properly configured and secured, that's really where you're going to have the problem. And if you go out to a number of sort of industry, um, uh, locate or industry sites where we you certainly measure this kind of thing, what you'll find is that injection attacks, which is what you're talking about, is actually at the very top of the stack for application vulnerabilities. And that's sort of what we're talking about. Injection attacks, which is when a user is going to put something in that input field that is unexpected. And so if you've got a name field, there are certain techniques where when you're application server or your web server looks at that field, there are certain things that are done just in putting characters in there where the systems are going to get confused. Say, wait a minute, that's a command. That's not a data entry. And it's going to process that script as a command. And that's actually called injection of when, and it's just as characters in a certain organization, a certain way to, you know, present that information. And the web servers are going to treat it as data that is actually instruction as opposed to a simple data field. So how do you fix that? The way you're going to do that is something called input validation, which is just think of a standard web form, name, address, telephone number, in some cases, credit card number. 
In that name field, the only thing that should go in there are certain alphabetic characters, depending on what country you're coming from. There might be a couple of special characters, but you're going to be very specific. Under no circumstances should there be any kind of a mathematical equation put into that space. And so you're not going to allow it. You're only going to allow text entry from an alphabetical context. Because once you start getting into the other functions that happen on your keyboard, like mathematical equations, then this starts to become a little bit confusing and these systems fail into a state that allows unauthorized access. Does that make sense? So is there an advantage of using some sort of off the shelf tool because rather than, you know, building it yourself so that oh, yeah, absolutely you're not doing so, that? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. So, I mean, you can go out and take a course on HTML or Java scripting and you can figure out how to build this on your own. And yes, there are a lot of tools out there that will allow you to do things like data sanitization and, and you know, data verification. And there are tools out there, but what you're wanting, what you're going to want to do is you're going to look out there at best practices. And there are certainly services that you can you know, subscribe to, and there are certainly applications that you can purchase that will help automate this for you. But it really comes down to one of these things. I mean, coding in and of itself is not dangerous. It's how coding is handled. And in some cases, it may just be a minor error made in some sort of a code that is mishandled. And because of that, the lack of a semicolon, the lack of a single quote, all of a sudden, this has a vulnerability that is going to scale broadly. So, you know, if you can't get someone to fill out a lead form, uh, from a digital marketing standpoint, the next best thing is to try to pick them up as a social media follower. Mm. So, so many uh, sites embed some sort of functionality from social networks to extend the functionality to the website so someone can follow you on Twitter or or like your page on Facebook without actually transiting away from your page. Right. Um, so does does embedding Facebook uh, and Twitter news feeds on a website, you know, do JavaScript embeds pose any risk? So sure. I mean, anytime you bring in dynamic content that you're not in control of, there is risk. But things have gotten a lot better, all right? So most of these social media companies recognize the fact that, you know, their content is of value to you, and therefore they're going to provide you with plugins um, that allow you to be able to put an applet or an appellate inside of your code that is going to display correctly. Now, again, we have to look at the security concerns around this. If it's done correctly, it's gonna handle correctly. However, and you've probably had this experience, you've probably gone to a website and the content's displayed, but there may be a window over on the left and right side that isn't displayed. There might be an X in there, there might be an error in there, 404, something else that's not connecting. In many cases, that's because it's not meeting the requirements of the browser that you're using. You have security settings on your browsers and the browser is not configured or it was configured for another platform like a phone and it's not displaying. That's a good condition. Now, it means that you're not getting the content, but the condition is it's failing close as opposed to doing something that it's not supposed to, which can open up a whole bunch of other problems. There's two things I, I take away with. One, the browsers that are available today have really moved a long way to becoming more secure. In other words, most browsers you get today and some of the big names that are out there you're familiar with are going to operate in a sandbox condition. 
which means the browser is not going to allow information or data to interact with your system unless you have specifically said yes to that happening. So it's going to operate inside of an isolated container. Depending on how you set your browser, it can get more complicated. But the bottom line is, is that security is part of this transaction. The one word of caution I would offer, though, you really do have to pay attention where you're getting your code from, where you're getting your pellets from, or where you're getting their plugins from. There's a lot of malicious content that has been posted purposefully to introduce weakness and vulnerability into systems. So you're going to look for a verified piece of code or an appellate. Now, getting it from the actual provider, absolutely, that's a great way to get it. Now, keep that in mind. You're now treating them like a partner. And so you have to look at it in the same context. What kind of risk is going to happen when I bring this into my environment? Make sense? I uh, just completed a public affairs report uh, with a strategy for winning support for climate action uh, in the United States. Um, unfortunately, climate has been politicized in the US by deniers who are backed by big oil and coal companies. Uh, my new paper outlines how to win support in a political environment where the messenger has become more important than the message. So if you're communicating science in a polluted information environment and you need to get the message across and get it to resonate with members of your opposing tribe, uh, download my white paper, uh, free, download my white paper, uh, download my free public affair, woof, try that again. If you're communicating science in a polluted, if, <laughs> if, you're, com if you're communicating science in a polluted information environment and you need to get your message to resonate with members of the opposition, download my free public affairs guide, winning support for climate action. And you can do that at ericschwartzman.com forward slash climate action. Okay, Daniel, here's a big one. So how do you get bots? How do you stop bots from signing up for your web forms and mucking up your database with fake registrations? Yep. So that, that is a big challenge. Um, and, and botnets and bot activity is becoming increasingly something that even small to medium business have to contend with because, as you know, you just said, you could pollute the entire data stream if you've got false information being put into your environment. So we touched on the solution a little bit earlier, and that is you're going to want to monitor what's happening at those interactive frontages. Right, where you're interacting with your customers and they're providing you information and they're transacting with you. It's the point of sale because that's where the bots are going to come in. They're going to come in from out. Now, if it's you know an inelegant bot, it's going to come in from one IP address. It's going to come in from one location. It's got a very detailed you know location. They say, okay, no, no, that interaction is not helping. We're going to block that IP. Well, Bots aren't stupid and neither are those who operate them. And so they're going to come at you from all sorts of different angles and they're going to come in from different IP addresses. They're going to proxy off places all over the world. They're going to come in from places that look like they're right next door. So in that condition, what you're going to be looking for is behaviors. And again, it has to do with knowing your system. What is normal? inside of your system, what is normal on your web page. So you're looking at this environment and you're starting to identify some patterns, patterns that could indicate bot behavior. So what that point you're going to want to do is you're going to want to actually create rules that when you identify this type of behavior, you're going to drop that connection. 
because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the cost on the bot so that they move on to something that's easier to get access. It's automated. But by doing that and consistently dropping connections based on behavior rules, you will eventually start to see that bot behavior reduce. In uh, my uh, other podcast, the Earned Media Podcast, I was talking to uh, David Pogue, who is the author of the new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, uh, in the current episode that's online. And uh, we were talking about, you know, sort of the breakdown of society as a result of climate change, because what happened in Katrina is the policemen, you know, took off. Some of them stole cars and took off, but it was the breakdown of society. And uh, we were talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, gun sales have gone up and, uh, and I, you know, don't own a gun because I just shoot myself in the foot. So I had said to him, you know, do you own a gun? He said, no, I have a tactical flashlight. Oh, what's that? Uh, a tactical flashlight is like a police flashlight that's 90,000 lumens and you shine it in someone's eyes and yell, hey, get the hell out of here. And that's good enough because they'll go on to someone who's got a few protections. So this is the, uh, the tactical flashlight. Let's see. Actually, actually, it makes me disappear completely. But uh, here it is. Fantastic. You're exceeding the parameters of your system, Eric. Yeah, this, this is I, instead of a gun, I did that. Okay. Uh, and it works terrific. I mean, I can literally, you know, I can see the house across the street, no problem, everything. <laughs> um, okay, what, what are the most common challenges uh, businesses face that come in and see you? What's the like, oh, the, the, the eye roll, of course, that happened to him too. What, is, what are the most common things you're seeing? So I think you can honestly say you can see this yourself. I mean, it's no surprise that small and medium businesses, um, as well as enterprises at scale, um, are really having to contend with the consequences of not just data breaches, but also ransomware. And so I'll unpack that a little bit for you um, so that you understand sort of what I'm talking about. Um, all right, so IBM put out a report last year, 2020, the cost of a data breach. And it basically says the average cost of a data breach to a company is gonna be somewhere north of about $4 million if it is truly a breach of sensitive information. So that's per incident. And you know there are variable costs in there. If it's a big deal where the, the company's well known, there's gonna be civil action associated with it. There's gonna be loss of reputation, loss of market share. Some of these variables are dynamic. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, the outcome is unanticipated costs, and that's never a good deal in business. All right. You never want that kind of surprise. And there are ways to mitigate that. But I mean, that's really one of the metrics we keep an eye on, which is, you know, how much does that continue to go up? And it's gone up consistently year over year as to how expensive data breaches. And certainly, you know, from a legal perspective, you also see that the regulatory environment around data breaches is getting more complex. I mean, you had GDPR about two years ago that came on for, you know, data in Europe, and there are all these rules and how quickly you have to notify regulators and, you know, what the potential fines are. I think GDPR is um, uh, 4% of your gross revenue if it's actually shown that there's, you know, that you were responsible or actually you have had a loss of sensitive information involving European citizens. Um, and that's not small change. Now, you know, pivot that and that's sort of the established problem into ransomware. Um, and so this is where 
this is really a representative of this criminal organization, this enterprise that is criminal, that and how they're adapting so quickly. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, ransomware incidents are going up um, because it's a very efficient, illegal means to generate revenue from companies that aren't prepared to deal with it. So, I mean, how do you deal with this? Um, if you, you know, I'm Ransomware is when someone comes into your environment and they're going to likely encrypt or hold some segment of your precious information for ransom. You pay the ransom, they quote unquote will somehow unencrypt your environment if you pay them the extortion. And that's really it. This is extortion as well. Extortion has been around for centuries. What we find is that companies that have recovery plans are the ones that are most capable of managing and reducing the risk associated with ransomware, but it's the ones that don't have backups. They don't have you know, other alternatives. And then there's a debate about whether we're gonna pay ransom. The, the challenge here is that you have to come out of, you have to come out of the moment and recognize the fact that these are criminals. And there is no expectation that they're going to make good on whatever it is they're offering you to return your information to you. Now, there is some business incentive on their part. I mean, these organizations operate with, you know, um, employee incentive plans, with vacation plans. They have return on investment. They operate just like normal businesses, but they're criminal. They're illicit. Nevertheless, um, there's no guarantee you're going to get your data back. And even if that goes down the pipe, it's going to take a long time. You're going to get hit and it's going to cost. And you're still dealing with the business problem associated with it. Now, complicating that even further, there are a great number of legislative bodies that are looking at this hard right now, especially with some of the research that's out there about how many organizations are actually surrendering a payment to these criminal organizations, because that's building a criminal business model that is getting bigger. So, you know, these are two things that I would take away from this is one is, you know, recognize what measure, what the impact would be to your company if you suffer a data breach that is going to negatively impact or regulatorily negatively impact your firm and what it's going to cost. And then also look hard at ransomware and what your recovery alternatives would be. Because again, this is about managing and reducing risk. Um, when it comes to artificial intelligence, you know, it seems like that's sort of the next frontier. Um, and obviously, we in the U.S. have all sorts of rules, privacy rules uh, that limit the amount of information that we can collect about users online. Um, whereas, you know, China doesn't have those same restrictions. And I wonder, you know, if you have any thoughts about whether or not we're at the risk of losing the battle for dominance in AI to the Chinese? It, you know, it's, it's a topic that we should discuss. I mean, you know, there, but, you know, the term AI has a lot of fuzziness around the outside of it. Okay. I will absolutely tell you that machine learning and deep learning machines is absolutely at that point where it is now delivering real value and utility to business. And I'm certainly, you know, I certainly use it at work. Um, it's, 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 it's a feature that has reduced the amount of time it takes me to get to an answer because it, there is this massive machine learning algorithm that is just crunching data all the time for a massive organization like IBM. 
and it is very functional. Now, that's where I think we actually, there is a dynamic that's shifting. Now that machine learning and deep learning is starting to show real potential from a business value prospect, that means market forces are being brought to bear. Now, dominance is always a factor of competition, but I'm a big fan of market competition. And I'm a big fan of letting the market take this where it's gonna go. I'm really not that concerned about AI, so to speak. I don't think we're there yet, but I am very encouraged by how machine learning and you know, ag- you know large data aggregations being processed for value. I think that is actually something we're going to see and I think it's gonna take off really rapidly. Daniel, final question. Um, you know, there's so much misinformation out there. I spoke to uh, the executive director at Edelman about the new trust barometer report and uh, the um, the result of the misinformation is, you know, people are unwilling to get the vaccine. I mean, that's that's real fallout. So it'll be it'll take longer and be tougher to get to herd immunity. Um, and you know, if we look at the algorithms we use to find information, you know, they're all based on either engagement or popularity. But there's no real, you know ranking factor for truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we haven't figured out how to automate, uh, you know, the truth from, from, from fact, from fiction. So I wonder, you know, with the overwhelming supply of misinformation out there, um, do you see, you know, technology solving the problem in any way, maybe in the future? It's a great point, and certainly we've all had to live through this very acutely over the past year or perhaps longer, but actually it goes back farther than that. Eric, actually, when you and I first met and we're starting to talk, we were talking about um, the outcome of the Arab Spring, and we were talking about whether it would have been possible to predict that civil disruption if we had been paying more attention to what was going on inside of social networks. And it, it repeated a couple of times. It happened with SARS when the first SARS outbreak happened and it happened also in other countries that were in sort of elect- electoral turmoil. And, and But that was really the, 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 the flavor of the day was, you know, was the Arab Spring predictable? Um, so if you go back and look at sort of how those technologies were looking at that space and the analysis from it, yeah, there's correlation. There's correlation in the technology. But correlation is not causation. And so I go back to that model I told you earlier about people, process, and technology. Um, People are wet-wired to assess trust. It's part of our brains, actually. And when we go into a trust relationship and that trust transaction is positive, we get a little squirt of endorphin that makes us want to do another trust transaction. And so, you know, this is not new science. This is actually how Madison Avenue is built. But, you know, this is all part of the process, but it does come back down to this people element. Okay. You know, regardless of the technologies, and certainly social medias have scaled, you know, beyond the scope of anything that I think anybody had ever achieved, but information campaigns have been a part of human endeavors since Gutenberg invented movable type. I mean, this is the genesis of information, all right? The technology may enable better human communication, 
but it still comes down to the human behaviors that are being facilitated as a consequence of technology. So, I mean, technology can improve the means at which information is delivered, but I remain, I, I really believe that this remains an individual responsibility. And you can call it to be skeptical. Um, I think that's actually a tradition in some countries to be skeptical. But, I mean, you really have to look at where the information is coming from and what the information is doing for you. And you have to make that personal assessment. And, and that's kind of how I want it. You know, I think George Orwell wrote a book once um, about people who relied upon authority and technology to tell them what the truth was. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty sad book. Unfortunately, it's a, uh, a book that has come true in many ways, uh, particularly in political discourse. Uh, Daniel J.W. King, Chief at IBM Security Command, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.